You're listening to the Manchester Vineyard Podcast. We'd love for you to join us. To discover more about who we are, where we meet, and how you can connect with us, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description. Guys, good morning. I, um, I try everything within me not to make... Uh, things we do and things we say about us and yet sometimes there are certain things where you're like well if I don't tell you you don't know so then you don't know how to pray let me just give you a real quick update on a couple of things uh, Steph is not here this morning uh, our youngest daughter is quite ill those of you that were here last week will remember me basically saying the same thing uh, kids do get ill um, but it strikes me as a little bit of a coincidence that for three out of four of the last Saturdays on a Saturday night she becomes significantly ill um, and I feel like I've said this for the last five or six years on virtually these same weeks in the lead up to Cause to Live For. So I'm not trying to overstate something, but I think it would be a bit weird if I didn't say it that way, that I think there's something a little bit more tricky about it. I was in A&E with her last night and she said to me, um, shall we sit in our usual seat? And you know, you're like, oh gosh, this is bad, isn't it? So um, we definitely... Uh, appreciate your prayers. I think there is a resistance that happens in these times, in these moments. I do find it personally quite draining. It robs us of headspace. If nothing else, it is definitely brutal on live, uh, let alone some of the other things. Um, her age and her life represents this church. And I always think there's something slightly interesting in that that is worth praying about and praying over. Uh, we haven't actually shared this with you, and I was just double-checking the youth aren't in because I don't want to make my own my other daughter nervous. This time last year, at exactly this point, Steph developed quite a significant lump in her throat. She was about to speak, of course, um, and it was, it was pretty brutal, if I'm honest, and it, it could have been very serious. Thankfully, it's not that serious but she did still does have a 40 millimeter which is the size of a golf ball lump in her throat that makes um drinking eating speaking quite painful so she's had that for over a year so it comes as no coincidence coincidence i feel like we're back in this place of saying to you can you pray um we've definitely been resisted uh what do we do about it well we pray we stand firm our weapons are on our knees we believe in God, but I do also believe at times there is a pushback. I, if I'm really honest, I don't think you get to plant a church without a bit of pushback. If we're going to see, if we want to stand still, we might be all right, but if we're going to forge forward, we're going to see some resistance. If you project that forward into the environment of something like Cause to Live For, I know multiple, multiple, multiple people over the last 10 years or so, their lives have changed in those moments, and they go and do some very radical kingdom things as a result. So as we press into these moments, of course there's a little bit of pushback. Are we scared, fearful? I hope not. You just stand firm, you keep praying, you trust God, and you keep pressing in for more. So we're not going anywhere. Um, I hope I'm not overstating something. I think if I'm honest, I'd be understating it if I didn't ask you to pray and to pray for what the Lord is doing among us here and will at that event. Philippians 4 verse 7, God, your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I want to encourage you, all of you, to be so aware that the enemy prowls around looking for somebody to seek and devour. We stand firm. We trust Jesus and we press in for all that he has for us. hope that's okay to share, um, partly share it just because we would appreciate your prayers. I'd also encourage you, if you can, 
come along. You know when the enemy resists something so strongly, you're like, well, surely the Lord's going to do something and he's going to equip us and change us for, for what's ahead. We want to be a people that keep our eyes on Jesus, regardless of the distractions, regardless of the challenges, regardless of the burdens and the pressures of life, whatever happens and however it happens, would we be a people that keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus? So whenever we read the Bible, I hope one of the first questions we always ask is, where do we see Jesus? Where can we find Jesus and where can we discover more of him? I hope that would be no different today. What is he teaching us? What is he teaching us to do and to be? And how does that make a difference in our lives? Where do we see Jesus in each other? And how do we uncover it and encourage it? Um, we've been, if you've been here for uh, the last month or so, we've been having a little look at the book of Luke, trying to draw some reflections on that, almost like a how-to. How do we this? How do we that? What does he say about various things? Today, I want to look at um, Luke chapter 19. I want us to consider how, how do we see him and uh, how, when we've seen him, do we then do everything that we possibly can to serve him? How do we be faithful and obedient to all that he's asked us to do and given us as a mandate? So we don't just read the Bible to gain facts. We The aim of reading it is to get to know Jesus more so we can learn to do the things that he's asked us to do. So if you've, if you've got a Bible, let me just um, start reading um, from Luke chapter 19, verse 1, says this, Jesus entered Jericho and he made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector in the region and he'd become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus but he was too short to see over the crowd, so he ran ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name, Zacchaeus. He said, come down, I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy, but the people were displeased. He's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor. That Lord, if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save those who were lost. I want to ask you today, and some of you may have been following Jesus for a while, but I want to ask you, will you do everything you possibly can to see more of Jesus? My encouragement today is to encourage you literally to do exactly that. See as much of Jesus as you can. If you've seen him and love him, do everything you possibly can to serve him. After traveling kind of for the, the last few chapters, Jesus finally enters Jericho. We see it in verse 1. And in the, his, the last major city Jesus visits before he enters Jerusalem, he's prophesied several times that he will reach Jerusalem. And when he does, he'll be, be, be betrayed. He'll be tried by sinful men, beaten, mocked, and he'll be kill, killed. And then three days later, he will raise again. And it's kind of in that context, just before that moment, that Zacchaeus tries to see Jesus. And verses 2 to 4 introduce Zacchaeus and records the effort that he went through to try and see him. Verse 2 says that he's a chief tax collector 
and it also says that he was rich. Both of those descriptions tell us something about Zacchaeus's spiritual life. Regular tax collectors were hated in Israel because they worked for the Roman government that oppressed the Jewish people. And Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. Imagine the situation and the scenario. In all likelihood, he didn't actually receive that position by working hard. He probably rose to that rank by being quite crooked and deceptive and more so than some of the other tax collectors who also cheated people out of their earnings. And then it also says that Zacchaeus was rich. If you just skip back into chapter 18, Jesus tells us something about rich people in verse 24. He says this, How hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Zacchaeus is a sinner and he's rich. And he's the kind of guy you wouldn't expect naturally or normally to make it into the kingdom. And then in verse 3, it says, he was trying to see who Jesus was. I honestly think that sentence is absolutely stacked and loaded with meaning. Maybe he's heard something about this rabbi and the miracles that he did, and he's astounded by his teaching. Maybe he's caught wind that he is somebody who accepts outcasts. He's looking for Jesus, but there's a problem. Even in the natural, he's a short guy who couldn't see over the people. That's what it says in verse 3. So this rich man who likely oppressed people and has become accustomed to submit it, having others submit to him out of fear, ran ahead, he climbs up this tree to try and see Jesus. Now, you might expect children to climb trees and sit on the branches, but you don't expect a grown man in his expensive robes to be hugging a tree looking out over the the crowd. Zacchaeus puts himself in a position and a place where Jesus can physically see him. I kind of just want to say that to you. Don't you want to do that? Don't you want to put yourself in environments and spaces and places around people who will reveal to you more of Jesus? What's what To do that, what is the tree that you need to climb? What's the space that you need to be in or the space that you need to be in more? I want to say to some of you, because it's kind of really obvious, honestly, if you can come to Cause to Live for, what's the cost of a hotel for what you may get in return and the investment in your spiritual life? Can you join a small group? Can you commit to the daily habit of reading your Bible? Can you take more risks in sharing your faith what are the things that are going to put you in spaces and places to not only see Jesus but to see more of Jesus that's where I want to be and I'm not going to let any crowd crowd me out from being in that place some of you your past mistakes your reputation whatever you think it might be I think Zacchaeus would have had a list of the things that could have potentially held him back that he wasn't going to let him hold him back because he started to come to an understanding maybe of who Jesus is but it's so easier in life I think to coast and to just be surviving or to opt for the easy life the comfortable life the kind of the midlife I've always done this so therefore it'll always be like that I I kind of want to really ask you this morning Will you climb the tree? Ask somebody today what it's going to look like for you to climb the tree. 
if you don't know what it is to start climbing it. Some of you are married and only one of you is climbing the tree and the other one isn't. Honestly, climb the tree. Climb the tree together. Some of you are committing to life choices and lifestyles that are keeping you a mile away from climbing the tree. Some of you are climbing out of the tree in the way that you're living and you're thinking. I, I kind of want to beg you, if I can, honestly, reassess. Reassess, reassess. Come and see more of Jesus. Don't, Please don't come here today and walk out of this room living as you were. Come and climb the tree. Come and see and place yourself in a place where you will see more of Jesus. So if I can, I just want to tell you two stories about climbing trees. Um, <laughs> the first one, um, I was in the fire service and I remember going to the stereotypical cat of a tree. And um, they, they, they only actually go to them now if the RSPCA call them because the cat is supposed to be up the tree for a number of days before they do it because I don't know if you've ever realized this. Normally what a cat does is it climbs a tree and then it comes out. That's kind of what they do. Anyway, this cat has been up the tree for a few days and we turn up and sadly so did also the local um, newspaper photographer. And this, this little crowd's gathered and I'm like the new lad in the fire service at the time and so it's my job to go up the ladder. And uh, I climbed the ladder, which in itself is quite a thing because it's against the cats are way up and it's against some thin branches. So the ladder is quite precarious and some of the guys are holding it up rather than resting it against the tree. And um, I got in eye line of, of this little cat. I can still see the, the little thing. And um, I've I got to be honest, I, for some reason, I don't have the best rapport with cats. And um, anyway, I reach out and I grab the cat and um, it's, it's obviously scared and frightened partly because I've got a big yellow helmet on. And um, as I grab it, it, it scratches me across the face. And um, some of you will be cat lovers. I just need you to just steady yourselves for a moment. It ends okay. But as I grabbed it and it scratched my face, I dropped it. And um, there's this moment of like, <laughs> no, watching this cat drop, a perfectly placed for this photographer to catch the moment. And um, it's, it's okay. It was all right. It, it it's remarkable how they land and the OSPCA checked it over and it was absolutely fine, not a problem. It just dented my pride more than anything. Um, second, second story is um, I, d I just actually don't like climbing trees, per se. I know some people really do and that's their thing, but I've found that the higher you go, the more precarious it gets and I don't really like heights and getting up there can kind of feel easy. But then when you get up there, you've got to... Have you ever found you get up there quite easy, but then you've got to navigate your way down? And so that's not always that pretty. And I found a few moments where I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to get down from here. So I don't really do it. Why, why am I telling you all of that? Well, some of you, I think, will have tried to climb the tree. And um, you said, I'm going to go... We're going to climb the tree. And you've been scratched. And it hasn't gone that well. And... Um, some of you have been scratched by falling flat on your face and you've been scratched by other people and you've been scratched by relationships and church dynamics and I expected this and it turned out like this and you've been scratched by the burden and the resistance that can sometimes come when you fully step out and say, I'm going to go for it in my faith and it's knocked you off course and it's deterred you and I want to encourage you we go again because we're supposed to be out of our depth. We're supposed to climb higher and higher and we're supposed to grow and depend ever increasingly on God.
verse 5 says this, when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and he called him by name Zacchaeus. He called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. They grumbled. Jesus saw Zacchaeus in the tree and he calls him by name. They'd, he'd never met him before that we know of, but Jesus knew Zacchaeus before Zacchaeus knew Jesus. Don't you love that? He knows you before you know him. It's really quite profound. That's the case with all of us. Jesus says to Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, because today it's necessary for me to come to your house, to stay in your house. By putting himself in a position to physically see Jesus, Zacchaeus has now also put himself in a position to see Jesus personally and socially. He receives Jesus' instruction and his invitation, and he does so joyfully, which I guess is kind of the only way you can respond when the Son of God calls you by name. But no doubt, I think some of you will have been hearing his voice, beckoning you to come closer to him, inviting you to step up and to step in. I, I want to suggest that we should be people kind of like Zacchaeus that hurry to meet him, hurry to meet him. Come and get around him. Come and be closer to him. Zacchaeus has gone from trying to see who Jesus was to hurrying to have him over for dinner. He's doing everything he can to get to know Jesus. I guess if you remember nothing else today, I kind of want to ask you this one question. Are you doing everything you can to know Jesus? Are you doing everything you can? Not just something, but everything you can to know Jesus, to then allow the fruits of the Spirit to spill out into your life. Verse 7 kind of presents this problem. The crowd has a bit of a mood swing. They've been traveling, excited with Jesus, but now they see Jesus calling him down to come and eat with him, and they begin to complain. They said he's gone to stay with a sinful man. The crowd seemed to think that holiness means separating yourselves from sinners and shunning them. They seemed to think that if Jesus really was a prophet or a rabbi, then he should have nothing to do with the likes of somebody like Zacchaeus, this sinful man, this man that is known to be a sinner. I want to say, let us be so careful of ever daring to assess whether somebody is worthy of meeting Jesus. Would I never be the person who judges or condemns or prevents somebody having access to intimacy with Jesus? We ought to concern ourselves surely with our own unworthiness if ever we find ourselves condemning someone else. What's true of Zacchaeus, I think, is actually true of us all. Romans 3, verse 23, we're all sinners who fall short of the glory of God, but thanks be to Christ Jesus, our Lord. A grumbling crowd is a dangerous crowd, and it turns on you. A grumbling crowd is a sinful crowd. And since grumbling against Jesus, I guess, is a sin in itself, but just as when Israel grumbled against God in the wilderness, we see it in Exodus 16, the crowd proves its own sinfulness as it grumbles because of Zacchaeus' sin. Not everybody will be happy comfortable, delighted when you walk closely with Jesus. 
even among a crowd of people who do supposedly know him. A godly person would rejoice to see you turn from sin and follow Jesus, but not everyone in the crowd, though religious, knew Jesus personally. It can be difficult to live down your sinful past when the crowd who say they know you or know about you or think they know something of you. But never let the crowd, never let that voice or the crowd of other people keep you from Jesus. Never let grumbling people interrupt the chance you have of getting to know Jesus personally. Verse 8 to 10, meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I'll give half my wealth to the poor Lord. And if I've cheated people on the taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save those who were lost. God saved Zacchaeus after he put himself in a position to know and to see Jesus, Zacchaeus, repents of his sin by giving half of his possessions to the poor and returning four times as much to anyone he has taken from or defrauded. Zacchaeus forsakes stinginess and greediness and turns to the poor in generosity. You know, in a world where riches choke out the word and it strangles faith, to give others to give to others and to be generous to others signifies something so beautiful about genuine repentance. Zacchaeus turns back to his victims and returns to them fourfold what he's taken. In this way, he turns back to God's law and he submits to the Bible's vision of justice and starts to seek to work for restoration. He demonstrates this newfound beautiful obedience before God. Zacchaeus, I think, provides us such a beautiful and marvellous picture of repentance. He provides us a marvellous picture too in Luke 18 verse 27 where it says this, what is impossible for people is possible with God. Here God demonstrates the possibleness of salvation in a rich man's life. God can call people from all of their idols, from a lifetime of sin and the habit of abusing privilege and position and others and turn such people to himself and makes them new. Every time you dig into the scriptures afresh like this, don't you just want to fall on your face between the utter awe and wonder of Jesus and all that he is and all that he's done for us. Zacchaeus is not buying his salvation. No amount of money can buy salvation. He's showing by his giving just how remarkably changed his heart has been and is. When a person is truly repentant, it affects their view. It changes their worldview and their dynamic of everything. And for him, in this moment, it changes his view over money. At the very least, money is no longer his God. Jesus is. I don't look to cheat people for money, but instead to bless people with money. They become kingdom givers rather than takers because they've been set free from remarkable greed and idolatry. A converted person becomes a generous person. That's why in verse 9, Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son 
of Abraham. Zacchaeus was saved from God's judgment against sin on that very day. He was saved because he became a true son of Abraham. Abraham believed God's promises and God counted Abraham as righteous because of his belief. That's what it says in Genesis 15 verse 6. And the same thing happens with Zacchaeus. He's believed the promises of God and has become a son of Abraham. He's become a person of faith. Conversion is the heart of Jesus' mission to the world. He's longing for us to soften our hearts before him. Verse 10, the son of man has come to seek and save the lost. If, if someone ever asks you, why, why, why did Jesus ever come? What was Jesus all about? I think that verse alone is surely the perfect answer. He came to seek and save the lost. What, what does it mean to be lost? We know we're lost sometimes, but sometimes we don't until we actually realize we don't know where to go. So often I've found myself driving along the motorway, listening to an absolute tune, just lost in my own world, absolutely ignorant to the sat-nav and missing my junction. And I know I'm not the only one who's done it. And not only when you miss the junction, you realize the next junction isn't one you can turn around at. And so you have to go even further out of your way. When we're lost, we don't always know we're lost. Sometimes we can be living oblivious to it. But the reality is we're all lost, apart from Jesus. We cannot determine how we got where we are or how to get back where we've been. Sometimes we get so lost. Lost in our relationships, lost in our finances, lost in our marriages, lost in the workplace, lost in a church. We, we end up lost and we start to distance ourselves from the centrality of Jesus. And when we've been lost so long, sometimes we don't even know where home is. We don't even know what true north is. And we can be separated from God and separated from a sensitivity to his Holy Spirit. Because as we start to become lost, we start to harden ourselves, our hearts, our minds, our friendships, our relationships. And we forget that we're able where we were with God and his kingdom and we forget the face-to-face -face relationship that he's longing for us to have. We forget why we even climbed the tree in the first place and lost people are people who cannot find the way to God and often that is because of sin. We start to find or place this barrier but the good news is the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The Father sent his Son to find them, not only to seek them, but to rescue them and to bring them back safely home. If you feel a bit lost, Jesus came to seek you out. Jesus is looking for you. He still seeks and saves the lost. I, I kind of want to say to you, don't let the crowd crowd you out. Do everything you can to see him and to be closer to him. Don't let pride drive you into deeper lostness. Instead, receive the love of God through Jesus. It was necessary, verse 5, for Jesus to go to Zacchaeus' home. Then necessity surely falls on us to go into the world to seek and to see the lost saved. God has placed us in a remarkable privileged position where we get to know him and then make real life contact with people, bearing, showing, offering something of the image of God to allow them to come home. It's our privilege, it's our joy, it's our responsibility.
we see two forms of justice in verse 8. It says this, Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, or if I cheated people on their taxes, I will give four times back as much. First, there's justice in the form of a redistribution of wealth. Zacchaeus gives half of it to the poor. This deed is done freely and voluntarily. It's the opposite of the rich man in Luke 18. Not everybody everywhere is commanded to do exactly what Zacchaeus did, but what a fine example to us. What a remarkable prompting and nudge and thing that we should consider and look at. Some people somewhere ought to do this. I would say it's how God cares for the poor through the redistribution of wealth, that we give all that we can, that we have this genuine conversion, this genuine understanding and seeing of Jesus that produces generosity in those that hearts and minds are yielded and welded to him. I want to say, and I'm so grateful to be part of such a generous church. So many times we see you generously, generously pour something out practically and relationally and financially in every other way to each other and to others in this city is a phenomenal thing to be part of it's a hallmark of something of the kingdom of god and his touch among us there's this other kind of justice that's happening here too and it's a repayment to the victim when Zacchaeus says that he will give fourfold to anyone who he has defrauded he goes from being lawbreaker to law keeper he seeks to do justice to bring about justice to those that he's wrong repentance isn't complete until there's justice to those that have been sinned against we can't say we're repentant and we follow jesus until we intend to address and challenge the wrongs that we've committed against others repentance includes a a repayment and a reconciliation repentance is a deep deep work of the lord we talk a lot about justice in our day but surely the way to see justice among us is to see us converted to live in the way that God requires. Micah 6 verse 8, Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is that the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness and to walk humbly with your God. Zacchaeus does everything he can to see Jesus and when he sees Jesus it changes everything about him when he meets Jesus he actually becomes a brand new person he's born again through faith we can't just say we know Jesus and then not let him change everything about who we are it all has to go on the table grudges bitterness revenge greed it all starts to fade and it starts to be replaced with love joy peace patience kindness hope and the things like that when Jesus comes into the home of our heart when we realize that he sees us when we realize he calls us by name we start to drop the barriers and our defenses and our hearts soften before him and because of him and we do everything we can to see him and we do everything we can to serve him verse 11 the crowd was listening to everything jesus said when, when they heard these things, they kind of made two mistakes in their thinking. The first one is this. It seems they forget that they were on their way to Jerusalem. And the second is all the talk of salvation coming to Zacchaeus' home on that day kind of had them thinking that the kingdom of God was going to appear right away 
there in front of them and they're ready kind of almost to skip the cross and go straight to the kingdom. I think that's a mistake. And I think it's a mistake people make all the time because the truth is there's no kingdom without the cross. First comes the suffering, then comes the glory. There's something to surrender and something to lay down. That's why Jesus tells them this next parable. He's almost trying to fix the two mistakes that he sees in his then thinking. We'll just pick it up in verse 11. It says this. Then the crowd was listening to everything Jesus said. And because he was near in Jerusalem, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. He said a nobleman was called away to a distant empire to be crowned and then return. Before he left, he called together ten of the servants and divided them, divided among them ten pounds of silver, saying, invest this for me while I'm gone. But his people hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we do not, do not want him to be our king. The parable has kind of three sets of characters in it. You've got a nobleman who goes into a far country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. We see that in verse 12. The nobleman represents Jesus. He goes to Jerusalem where he would be killed. He would rise three days later and ascend into heaven that's the far country where jesus would receive his kingdom he's going away for his time then there's the 10 servants that we see in verse 13 those who are followers or disciples of jesus they have received 10 coins they're supposed to engage in business until the nobleman returns in other words the servants or disciples are to be good stewards for jesus serving him until he returns and then finally the other character at play is the citizens, verse 14. They hated him and they sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. These citizens re represent the lost sinners who reject Jesus in their sin. They attempt to be their own lords, to be their own keeper, to be the people in charge of their own lives. Verse 15 says if after he was crowned king, he returned and called in the servants to whom he had given the money. He wanted to find out what their profits were. The first servant reported, Master, I invested your money and made ten times the original amount. Well done, the king explained. You're a good servant. You have been faithful with the little I entrusted you, so you will be governor of ten cities as your reward. The next servant reported, Master, I invested your money and I made five times the original amount. Well done, the king said. You will be governor over five cities. But the third servant brought back only the original amount of money and said, Master, I hid your money and kept it safe. I was afraid because you're a hard man to deal with, taking what isn't yours and harvesting crops that you didn't plant. You wicked servant, the king roared. Your own words condemn you. If you knew that I'm a hard man who takes what isn't mine and harvests crops that I didn't plant, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I would have gotten some interest on it. Then turning to the others, standing nearby, the king ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one who has 10 pounds. Verse 15 in that kind of flashes forward when the nobleman returns from the far off country where he's received the authority 
to be king. So Jesus is kind of looking down the, the tunnel of time to his second coming. And despite the servant's protest, the nobleman does in fact return with his kingdom intact. I want to say that's the good news. Jesus will come back and his kingdom will be intact. The first nobleman, sorry, the first thing the nobleman does is he calls his servants to him to give account for how they conducted their business. We are people who give account for how we live and how we act. The parable is illustrated and lived out in 1 Peter 14. Sorry, 1 Peter 4 verse 17 says this. The time has come for the judgment to begin with God's household. The first people called to King Jesus are those who follow him. We must give an account for what we do with our coins, which kind of symbolize our whole selves, our whole lives. In what way are we stewarding all that we have? to complete our master's business of seeking and saving the lost. Once we've seen him, we then have to do something with what we've seen. We get a report on the three of the ten servants. It says this, the first servant, verse 16 and 17, multiplied what he had been left ten times. And because of that, he was given the ruling of ten cities. The second servant, verse 18 to 19, multiplied what had been left five times and so therefore rules over five cities. Ruling over cities kind of represents our reign with Jesus in his kingdom. The reward is proportional to the return on the investment. A life of serving Jesus is an eternal reward. Then you get to see another servant, verse 20. It's kind of harder to read. That servant came with excuses rather than profit. He'd hid the money and he'd buried it. Verse 21 says this servant did that because he was afraid of the nobleman. He thought the nobleman to be harsh. The servant thought the nobleman reaped or received where he did not sow or where he did not work. This servant thought hard thoughts towards the Lord and his fear, he thought, might excuse him enough to justify his failure to use what the nobleman had given him. The problem is he didn't act on what he knew. I want to be somebody who acts on what I know. In verse 22 to 23, the nobleman uses his own words against him. He says, basically, if you knew those things about me, then you should have done something about what you knew. You should have used what I gave you. The nobleman points out that this man does not live by his way of thinking. He confesses something about the Lord, but he does not live in the light of that confession that he's made. Even with his partial knowledge, the servant should have acted. Why why didn't he even make a safe investment like depositing the money in the bank to earn interest? God expects us to use what he's given us to make more his kingdom. God expects us to use our understanding of him to motivate our actions. We should be a people that act on what we know of and about God and we can't be people who make excuses for not acting on the truth that we know about him. It's not that we are responsible for the truths we don't know but we are responsible for the truths that we do know. Someone once said I'm not troubled by the parts of the Bible I don't understand I'm troubled by the parts of the Bible I do understand. See, whatever we know about God, we're responsible for that truth before God. 
even if we like this servant don't like that truth or it feels uncomfortable or unpleasant to us we must steward it by acting on it to make a profit for the kingdom i realize this is no easy message to share or say but i know in my own life i'm responsible for the little thing that he's given me to be faithful to steward it to be more instead of inherited inheriting cities to rule the third servant loses the cities and he loses his stewardship he himself is not lost but all that he could have had and all that could have been rewarded in the new kingdom is taken away god calls us to live for a reward beyond our imagination we should serve jesus until we see more of jesus then one day we will hear well done good and faithful servant well done good and faithful steward and we share in his reward do we need a reason to get out of bed tomorrow how about the promises of an eternal kingdom with jesus and then for me and i long and i hope for you I want to be like Zacchaeus. I want to repent of my sin. I want to believe in Jesus as my Lord. And I want to be faithful to serve Jesus for the rest of my life. And then receive glory and honor as we collectively get to reign with him. That's what this chapter is kind of getting at. There's no better way to live. We are called to give God what we have and serve him and the extension of his kingdom with everything within us. Does your attitude serve Jesus does your diary serve Jesus does your house serve Jesus does your compassion serve Jesus does your mind serve Jesus does your humility serve Jesus does your softness serve Jesus what what is it for you literally all that we have and all that we are should be put through that filter in first and foremost surrendering our lives to serve Jesus because we have the remarkable privilege of having seen him also in the knowledge that we are called to give an account the more we see of him the more we realize that we're to be a people that serve him why don't we stand together I want to invite us to open ourselves to the Holy Spirit and part of me wants to say like we always do part of me wants to say would we never just do it like we always do would we always just take a step further into the goodness the kindness of God and our offering of our lives to the fullness of him so Lord we open our lives to you we surrender our hearts to you. Come, Holy Spirit.
just increase our awareness of his presence. Some of you will be for the first time this morning, but some of you will have been distracted, dented, diminished, downtrodden. You will have been knocked off course. Pains, fears, insecurities that will have just stopped you seeking to grow and to grab the fullness of all Jesus has. Some of you will be wounded, bruised, hurt, disillusioned. It will have dampened your resolve to serve him. Some of you will have found the, the price, the cost, just too much. just want to encourage you to go again, to come again and to go again. Some of you will have had things spoken over you, said of you, felt people mocking you, laughing at you, jeering at you. Things in your childhood, things in your friendship groups that have just slightly deterred you and knocked you off course. Go again. the prayer team shared a word this morning that there's a call back to the heart of God not just people who are struggling but also those whose lives are going well but there is a dissatisfaction and the Lord is calling it a holy dissatisfaction he's calling you back to his heart to be the centre of his will and there's an assignment for you and the Lord has put something in your life that he wants you to take part in so that he can bless you and be a blessing through you. I believe that. Lord, come upon us. Some of you, I feel like you almost need to acknowledge and realize the fiery arrows of the enemy that are shot and fired at you. For us, it's so often health, or there's a few other things. I know what they are, it's not going to stop me. up the shield of faith all over again some of you need a new coating a new layer a new emboldening of that shield I feel for some that you um, your version this morning of climbing that tree or investing that silver is to just come forward for prayer for healing that David mentioned during worship that that sense of there's there's so much more God wants to heal you physically emotionally mentally spiritually so this is yeah this is a, a stepping into it moment He's here. He's good and he's kind. Some of you, you know, you want to be prayed for and you want to respond. Why don't you just do that now as we're stirred? It's so much easier to get out of your rage.
Thanks for listening. To find out more, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast.